When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to American Party Podcast. We've got a very special guest today. Do you go by Jeremy W. Peters or Jeremy P? Like, how pretentious do you get with your name? <laughs> That's a very good question. A fair question. Uh, I, the W is just for my byline because mm. in college, there were actually two Jeremy Peters. And to differentiate myself at the student newspaper, I just took my middle initial. Uh, it's like SAG where you have to change your name a little <laughs> bit because somebody else already has it. Uh, let's see. So, um, you are, uh, uh, are you a staff writer for New York times or are you just, uh, yeah, okay. I've been here for, uh, uh, on staff for s- more than 15 years at this point. Oh, wow. And uh, what did you, let's, let's talk about, before we get into your book and everything, let's talk about <clears throat> your background. You cover, uh, a lot of politics just from the media side and, and, and even you cover a lot of the media around politics as well, which is really interesting to me. Um, how did you get into that? You said you were talking about college. Did it start there? Or was it before that you started to have an interest in this sort of thing? I mean, I always consumed a lot of political media from a young age, you know, media of all sorts, um, from like talk radio to cable news as, you know, as, as a teenager, uh, because I was just very interested in, in current events. Mm. And uh, as, as, as I kind of took on different assignments at the Times, one of them was media. And there was always, I think, a little bit of a, a, a blind spot in the mainstream press as to how you cover conservative media. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it often gets treated as, as like an oddity um, or a something that's not, I don't want to say not real, but something that doesn't need to be paid attention to as more than a novelty. When you say and conservative I, media, obviously, you're not just talking about Fox. That gets covered a lot. but I guess back in the day, Drudge, although he's made a bit of a turn, but the newer versions are Newsmax, OAN, and things like that. Is that what you're referring to? Totally. I wrote a story about Newsmax back in 2010. Mm. Went down to West Palm Beach and um, interviewed people there just because I thought they were doing something that was pretty interesting. And and it wasn't, you know, I, I tried to show that, you know, these... These publications, these outlets are, you know, they have, they have a large following and they're very, they're very influential and they shouldn't be treated as, as just novelties or, uh, or entertainment or, or, or these, or these folks, um, the hosts just as, as entertainers, which of course they were in many respects, but, um, they were also, uh, uh, very serious from, or coming from a very serious political perspective. Right. And who do you think, um, uh, just while we're, while we're talking about it, um, <clears throat> what do you think the, uh, uh, I guess, I, I, let me see how to phrase this question. Who do you think was the cause of the hyper-partisanship that happened in the media? I mean, it seems to me like what I hear from the conservative side is they felt boxed out, so they created their own media. And by doing that, obviously it was going to be intrinsically right-leaning, right? Because they created it for that purpose. 
Uh, sure. But that was under the assumption that the, the media was already left-leaning in the first place. Now, maybe that's true. It's, I think it's, it was kind of a reimagining of the, the silent majority from Nixon, you know what I mean, that, that kind of thing. But what, what do you think? Because CNN was pretty down the middle until the early 2000s. I mean, they, uh, on the Bush-Gore thing, they were pretty clear. They weren't like, if CNN today was covering Bush-Gore, <laughs> it would be a much different, like everything would, would have been covered quite differently. So how, how do you think that all uh, uh, tumbled to where it is now? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Nixon and the silent majority, right? Because um, who worked for Richard Nixon but Roger Ailes? And I think like early on, um, Ailes, and, and I actually get into this in, in, in my book, uh, Buch- Pat Buchanan, I understood that there was a huge disconnect between what most Americans believed about the political system, believed about Vietnam back then, right. uh, specifically and what uh, more elite thinkers in uh, at the broadcast networks or at the New York Times felt. And they right. saw that disconnect and they used it for their own political purposes uh, very wisely. But some of, that, some of that was also pretty nefarious, right? I mean, Lee Atwater is one of the biggest pieces of shit in all, in all of American political history. The guy who developed the Southern strategy, which is you can't uh, call black people the N-word anymore, so you have to call white mm-hmm. people hardworking Americans and make people think that everybody else is not a hardworking American. I mean, he he's on tape literally saying this stuff. I'm not I'm not editorializing here. So no, you're not. Uh, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know if Buchanan was that. I mean, I he he seems like a jackass to me, to be honest. But I'm not sure how deep he was into that part of the strategy. But Nixon certainly knew about it, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, th- it definitely and saw that it worked and saw mm-hmm. that by attacking uh, the mainstream press as you know a bunch of elitists was very popular. People like to hear it um, because they believed it. And, you know, so I mean, where exactly things took a turn, um, you know, we could go back a, a long, long ways and be here for hours mm. discussing that. But um, yeah, focus I, on the 21st century, because I think sometime in the yeah. early 2000s is where it really went off the rails. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, there were a lot of people on talk radio who who made a lot of money and had a very uh, developed very very large audiences by telling their listeners, "Look, you're only getting the truth from me. There, right. the rest of the, the rest of the media is lying to you." And you know that's it's awfully it, convenient, right? <laughs> whatever people want to say about and 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 from there, I think you get. It, from the audience perspective, they believe that this is a this is a special commodity that they're listening to. That like they're in on the secret. They're getting yeah. the news um, in a way that that all these the, all those other sheep's um, uh, are, are out there are are not right. That's why um, cults are so attractive to certain types of people or secret societies and groups like that. I mean, it's they, they've been popular throughout all of human history, really, for the same reason. Yeah. Right, and so you, know, you have that um, uh, from the audience perspective, but from you know from the perspective of of these hosts, it it's a huge business, mm. right? And you know, I mean, tens of millions of listeners these folks have, and uh, it, it, what they didn't have until Trump was a full on partnership, right? And so, you know, whatever you want to say about the New York Times, like I, I can promise you that around this newsroom, there the editors um, are not coordinating uh, our coverage uh, or what we're going to say about a, a certain event with anyone in the Democratic Party or the White House. Like that's just, it doesn't happen. Um, I, I swear, mm-hmm. <laughs> people maybe not, they don't believe me, but what it, that doesn't mean that our, our coverage doesn't occasionally like reflect uh, certain 
points of view and agendas that that align with with a liberal point of view. Um, I'm just saying it's not as nefarious uh, a, a connection as people often like to make it out to be. What changed, I think, in the 2000s and, and the 2010s and became the norm with Trump was the extent to which outlets like Breitbart and, and hosts like Hannity openly collaborated with a political campaign and later the president of, of the United States. And I think that's a that's a huge development and something that they always accused us of doing, but that we were never doing at that kind of a level. Um, well, maybe not the New York Times, but there's quite a bit of I mean, so the the is Donna Brazil right before the uh, one of the debates in 2016. Uh, sure you know, gave Hillary Clinton the questions in advance and stuff like that. I'm sure you could find one-offs here yeah. and there all over the place. Uh, but I, I honestly, I, I'm, I'm not sure people care that so much about the coordination part, although I do find it distasteful. And, and you, if anybody doesn't believe that it was happening, uh, regardless of how you feel about <clears throat> Trump or the events of January 6th, uh, multiple people from Fox News were texting his chief of staff saying hey tell just tell them to tell people to go home like mm-hmm. three or four different people did that and that's i'm not sure if i've ever heard of anything like that happening before right and it, and it just shows you like the level of access um that they that they had uh to to his white house mm. um and yeah it was it, back in that wasn't true of the republican party even back in the 90s right because it, it was bush hw bush famously invited Rush Limbaugh to uh, to spend the night in the Lincoln bedroom. And then Limbaugh went on the air and told everybody that uh, the, the president offered to carry his bags for him. Right. Oh, so, it, <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, it's, it, they didn't have they, they had a, a, a relationship. Sure. Mm. But like Rush and, and and those conservative media stars of that era were, were very much outsiders and they prided themselves on being outsiders and not beholden to that type of that wing of the Republican party, you know, the establishment Republican party. Right. Uh, and what do you, I I guess, uh, I I don't remember exactly how involved Ted Turner was at CNN past the nineties, to be honest, but they definitely have had quite a swing from being, uh, the, the centrist cable news network to certainly being more partisan than they've ever been before. And I wonder if that was, a rea- it, se- it seems like one of these stupid pissing matches to me where uh, a bunch of ego-driven people get in, uh, they, they lock horns and nobody wants you to say. And it's, to me, it's the problem with fundamentalism. Um, the, goal mm-hmm. is, the goal is always to win and not to get the right answer. And we, like the American public has been so deprived of just information over the past 20 years. Like it's, you, you, people ask me all the time, one of the, one of the questions that I get, excuse me, that I get asked most is how do you know what's real anymore? Because there's so many, like two, there's an event and there's four different networks and they all cover it differently. How is that possible? How can the facts be different? Uh, And the answer is obviously that they're not different, but the lens is different. So, you know, I mean, to me, it's like a math problem almost. You see the lens and you can kind of you know, figure out kind of what angles people are coming from, what's real or not. But now we've seen, we're seeing like propaganda from every possible political uh, uh, party, right? Uh, or not, mm-hmm. polit- not political party, but, <clears throat> but like partisan person that's in either corporate world or media or government, wherever it is. And uh, it's, it's become increasingly difficult for people to know what's real. Right. And they immediately discount something 
um, that may be true Correct. because they yep. hear it from somebody they consider to be a partisan source. And this is not just a problem on the right. And I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not the first person to, to discuss or identify this phenomenon, but the, the far left has its own problem with reality and truth in terms of acknowledging certain societal problems, right? Like, look at, look at what was said about rising crime rates, yeah. violent crime, homelessness. No, that's not a real problem. It's just being exaggerated by the Tucker Carlson's of the world. Mm. Like, no, it's, it's not. Like, yes, are they, are they seizing on very graphic examples of these problems with crime, with looting, and, you know, run the Black Lives Matter protests? Mm. Like, yes, are they blowing a lot of it out of proportion? Yes, but it, that doesn't mean that it's not a real concern for ordinary people. And when you tell ordinary people, uh, well, whatever that term means, but when you tell just, you know, when you tell anyone uh, what you're seeing isn't true what you're what you're seeing shouldn't be believed uh it's not real you're minimizing that and that's that's a problem i think it's a bit worse than just minimizing it i mean yeah there's an element of crying wolf that makes people distrustful of any kind of uh institution and that's a big problem but i think a lot of it is also this manufacturing consent phenomenon where if you say something loud enough and long enough people will begin to believe it and there have been uh, quite a few news agencies. Uh, I don't particularly recall how the Times <clears throat> reported on this, but this uh, Hunter Biden laptop situation is fucking crazy. I mean, I, I don't know. I have no idea what's actually going on there, but I do know that it was real and that a, most of the uh, legacy media reported that it was not and social media banned people for mentioning it and all this other shit. Uh, this New York Post article got banned all over social media, but it turns out that it was true. And right. Right. No, the times reported that last week. I I believe it was last week. Right. We did a story saying that, uh, it was definitely not stolen. I mean, definitely not, uh, um, fake disinformation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So how do you, I mean, that, that's, that's a, uh, that's an institutional problem, I think. Right. Because people like if you're, and to me, it's a matter of, um, what your motivations are or your motivations to, I mean, look, you're running a business, right? So you do have to make money at some point. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that necessarily. <clears throat> but right. the goal of news is to report news. And if the goal is to report yeah. certain types of news or shape, uh, shape a certain type of narrative, then now, now you're lost, right? I mean, you can't operate that way. I don't, I don't see how that works because mm-hmm. these kind of things happen. It's, it's basically just confirmation bias, but on like a, an institution-wide scale. Right. I mean, I think a lot of what you saw there was a reaction to uh, to what happened in 2016 uh, and the, the way a lot of news organizations felt that they gave too much credence to the, the story of, of Hillary's lost emails, um, stolen emails. Uh, and so they were trying to figure out a way um, not to let... Uh, you know, foreign interference with an election taint the coverage again and mm. taint the the reputation of mainstream media or the outlets that were covering the story with their audiences. Um, and you know, the you could I think there's a case to be made that the the social media companies didn't think about what deplatforming would do, what censorship 
of those types of stories would do because they got in the business all of a sudden that they said they never wanted to be in, which was acting like a publisher and deciding right. what content is permissible and what's not. And, you know, I've heard people say, you know, like the, the, the CEO of Telegram that deplatforming folks uh, around the, the 2020 election just pushed them into other platforms and emboldened them. It, it made them, uh, it, it gave juice to that, that, uh, that kind of belief, that, that movement, if you want to call it that, like those, those people felt all of a sudden um, more energized than they otherwise would have if Facebook had just like left them to, to their own devices. But all sure. of a sudden, you, know, you, you make it a huge story once you start kicking, uh, kicking people off uh, and, and major, major mm. players. Um, offline. Yeah, I think it was actually you guys that wrote a story about how that New York Post article got four times more coverage than it would have if they had just left it there, which is really fucking stupid. I mean, if your point was to kill it, then yeah. that was kind of dumb. But to going back to what you said about not wanting, uh, <clears throat> uh, I guess maybe the the uh, uh, specter of of outside influence over the election. Uh, all of these media companies, yours included, were all too happy to promote the Steele dossier, which turned out to be fake. Not only fake, but purchased with DNC money by Hillary Clinton through a foreign agent, which seems like maybe criminal to me. I don't know. Uh, they were all too happy to publish all this shit and block anybody for saying it was fake and, and allow all this stuff to happen uh, uh, You know, when it was a Republican that won and they were trying to discredit that, right? But mm -hmm. once it, it, it's awfully convenient. What you're saying is awfully convenient. And it goes a long way in emphasizing the point that when it was a liberal person or a Democrat getting elected, now all that stuff is off limits. And it reemphasizes that point that a lot of people feel that the legacy media is inherently liberal, right? Don't you? I mean, that's that's got to be a problem. It is. And, and it's and that type of uh, perception now applies to big tech, right? And mm. Facebook and Google, which YouTube. is not always true, by the way. Big tech goes where the money is. They don't give a fuck about politics, in my opinion. Right. They, they go where they go with the money as they go. You know, if the, the threat of a boycott, um, I think, in a lot of cases, um, obviously shaped those those decisions mm. that were made around the 2020 election. Um, but it's tricky. Right. I, it, and I kind of have a, I, I have a sympathy um, for the because something changed. Right. Like Zuckerberg and, and these guys, uh, Dorsey, um, Twitter, Zuckerberg, at Facebook said all along they weren't going to get into the content moderation business that wasn't what they were there mm. to do um and they stuck by that for a long time until it became politically untenable um i think you know when you talk about sent but taking off uh offline information that incites violence that you know the the people who were organizing ahead of january 6 who were looking to cause trouble mm. right we're talking about bringing weapons and 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 starting really bad shit uh, that I think is an example of stuff that's perfectly defensible to take down if you're if you're a Facebook or a Twitter of the world, right? Um, but when you get into censoring certain types of news stories um, and labeling one thing misinformation, you know that's a very it's, it's, it's a very subjective standard, and it's really tricky to do with any type of consistency. Yeah. And that's why I think the, the fallout that you're seeing right now, and you're put as I wrote about the other day, you're pushing a lot of these users. Uh, and a lot of these big profile uh, content creators to alternative platforms like Rumble. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's, uh, uh, man, so, so bizarre to me, the, uh, uh, the, the way, well, let, let's go to social media. I don't know the solution to that. I don't know anybody that does. I hear a lot of people bitch about it. Exactly. And I'm one of them too. I bitch about it all the time. Like, because one of the things you pointed out about looking for, 
um, <clears throat> stuff that might lead to violence and dealing with that. I think that's appropriate and there should be some kind of way to deal with that. Uh, what Facebook especially has not done is done anything about child sex trafficking. That's been a big problem for them on their website and they've done literally nothing to combat that. Uh, so, but again, I don't even know what the fuck you do. I mean, exactly. I, the, the, the average person doesn't know enough about tech or about how a complicated, especially an AI algorithm and how it evolves without you even having to touch it over time. Like right. you, it's, it's like dropping a pebble in a pond and the ripples do what they do. And then you have to adjust over and over again. It's kind of how it works. I don't know what to do. I, I would love to hear somebody that has an actual plan. I hear a lot on Twitter now about Eli or uh, Elon Musk. It might develop some new social media. Like what the fuck, right. how, what's going to be different about it? You know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, that's the thing. What, what is going to be different about it? Are they going to have some special, but for, yeah, I, I, I find that hard to believe. Um, although I don't know, yeah. but that's the thing is, is there's, um, and, and I, I wrote about this earlier this week um, in a story um, I did about, you know, the rumble kind of emerging as an alternative platform mm. that didn't start out trying to be Trumpy. It didn't start out trying to be conservative, but it ended up being dominated by right. those folks. Well, OnlyFans didn't start out for cam girls either, but that's just kind of how it worked out, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that's right. That's a good point. But you have, you know, you've got um, a whole alt web that is that is really forming, and you know, I don't know what role Trump's Truth Social is going to play in that because they've had such a hard time getting off the ground with their their, their technology. But yeah, it's got a very healthcare.gov feel to it, doesn't it? <laughs> it's a, it's the, they they have you know such little technological capability mm. of their own that they've actually gone to Rumble and Rumble is is doing a lot of the back end stuff for them now. Um, but right, so the question is, how many of those of the Rumbles, the Truth Socials, the Getters uh, of the world can there be, and do they really kind of form their own their own universe where you know people <laughs> are even more s- siloed off from one another um, based on their political persuasion? Yeah, that's a big problem. I mean, I think. <clears throat> We can, we'll get about this, get into this more when we talk about your book, because I've got some pretty strong feelings about conservatives and liberals uh, and, and neo of each one of those. <clears throat> but, uh, uh, you know, regardless if you believe anybody's actually pressuring from the outside to do this, if you're being divided, somebody's trying to conquer you in some way, right? It's, a, it's typically a distraction. Uh, and I, I, don't, I don't particularly care for it. I don't... <clears throat> we need conservative people who are actually concerned. This is our system of government was built this way for conservative people and liberal people to have debates ad nauseum forever and adjust policy based on that in a way that at least somewhat reflects a meritocracy, right? Like we, we understand that we can't be perfect, but the right and left have to talk. Mom and dad have to talk. We have to figure out uh, some kind of balance between strength and empathy, like we do as human beings, right? It, it, no different than, uh, you know, how your parents raise you. And without those two sides in their genuine forms, having that genuine discussion, then I think we're fucked, right? And we just keep getting, it, it's, it's like hyper-partisan mission creep. Uh, uh, we've, in, our, in, our, in the last 20 years, we've had a Republican mm-hmm. preside over the largest expansion of the federal government history. How is that possible? You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that shouldn't even be possible. But that's that's a reality that people have just memory hold. They just accept that as reality now. Yeah, they do. I mean, it's it's it, this problem of like dehumanizing the other side uh, is is has just gotten worse in the pandemic, right? Because people weren't 
able to interact with each other on a human level. Right. Um, and you have these, these incredibly consequential national discussions happening over race relations and, and public health. Uh, and they were happening online, which is probably the worst imaginable place that you could imagine uh, that happening. I mean, just, it's, it's the worst way to, to, to have a constructive outcome. Uh, and I just really, I, I said to somebody before left office, but at right after, you know, he was, he was defeated, like, okay, so the Democrats are taking over Biden ran on this message of reconciliation, you know, healing the soul of, of the nation. Um, I actually thought at the time and still think that, that I was right, that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Mm. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. And, and to that, to that point about, uh, the, uh, just treating the other side, like the enemy, um, which that again, doesn't make any sense to me. We, from, we went from Tip O'Neill in 87 to Newt Gingrich, uh, in 94, I think. And things changed mm-hmm. quite a bit in that seven year period. I mean, Frank Luntz turning the word liberal into a slur basically didn't help. Uh, uh, a lot of stuff happened in that time period that was really not very helpful. I think they changed it from, um, it was went from the Southern strategy to uh, was it family first? I think was right. the the code right. words they used then. Anyways, so let's get into your book. <clears throat> the title is "Insurgency: How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Ever Wanted." I've got a couple of questions just Great. about the title. One: uh, To whom did they lose their party? And then, uh, what was it that they got that they had always wanted? Those are my two main questions from that. So. When I say Republicans lost their party, the type of Republican that I'm referring to is one that you'd consider to be uh, like a Bush type Republican, kind of because those were the people who were always in charge. They always beat out the insurgent candidates. Uh, going back to for Pat Buchanan in 1992. Um, the, uh, the the even the rise of the Tea Party and Sarah Palin, you know, the the insurgents always eventually had to take a back seat to the you know John Boehner, uh, Mitt Romney establishment, uh, corporate Republican Party, and when Trump came along, that changed. He was the, and the irony of course here is that he's not, or one of many ironies is is that he wasn't even really a Republican, but he took over the party uh, by leading an insurgency. Mm. And it was, it became the first successful insurgency to topple the folks who had always been in charge and who had always partnered with the insurgent wing of the party, thinking that they could develop a, constru- a constructive relationship, a, const- a constructive governing coalition, but it, it eventually always kind of unraveled because they didn't respect the, the the conservative grassroots. They didn't respect the social conservative activists, um, the Tea Party types, who ultimately right. <laughs> comprise the insurgent wing of the Republican Party. Yeah, for sure, and it's uh, I mean. The Tea Party was pretty successful getting elected, not so successful at staying elected. I don't know if is there is there anybody left from the Tea Party? 
Uh, I mean, they're now like the Freedom Caucus, but even uh, well, I mean, even, like the people that got elected in 2010. I think like oh, Michelle yeah. Bachman's gone. Uh, what's his name? Steve King. He got ripped because he's a lunatic. Got uh, right. Uh, there, yeah. there's, there were a couple of other ones. Uh, I think Cruz came in sometime around then too, but he moved. Even in Senate. 2012. Yeah, uh, Rubio. But now Rubio's yeah, Rubio, not yeah. Tea Party, right? Like you know, yeah. he's tried to reinvent himself a few times, mm. but but he went from being like the conservative renegade to being you know, establishment big money corporate Republican pretty quickly. So even the ones that started out as Tea Party aren't really fully, I guess you have a a handful, maybe like Jim Jordan. I forget when he got elected. Um, You know, but but they're all basically, the Tea Party has kind of, this isn't exactly an original thought, but like, you know, that became the Trump movement. Um, And a lot of those guys were more, are are now, um, kind of always were anti-liberal, um, yes, they were conservative in a lot of ways, but but what defines the Republican Party right now is more of like an anti-liberal attitude than anything else. Um, so it's the, 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 you know, when I say the Republicans lost their party, they lost it, the establishment Republicans lost it to people like that. And the efforts decades long to tamp that down, to try to silence those people mm. or to co-opt them finally broke with Trump. And when I say they got everything that they ever wanted in losing their party, I mean, what, 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 it's hard for me not to look at the Supreme Court right now and the decades long campaign from the right to remake the court into a conservative leaning institution and see that Republicans did, did get everything they wanted because that ultimately will be the enduring legacy of the Trump presidency, regardless of, of whether or not he wins and runs and wins another term again. Uh, and you need to look no farther than than Roe v. Wade and what, what see, appears very likely to happen when the court decides that case uh, this later this spring. Um, this the, the culmination of this, again, decades long project uh, to undo that, uh, to undo that decision, um, is what the I think the paramount goal from the conservative movement uh, of the last generation, and they're on the cusp of achieving that because, ironically enough, of a formerly pro-choice former Democrat from Manhattan who considered himself to be socially progressive. All right, Jeremy, give me a minute. I'm going to read uh, some advertisements so we can, you know, afford to continue to supply me with beard products. Uh, they're very expensive. Right now, GhostBed is offering 40% off GhostBed bundles where you get a mattress and adjustable base or uh, 30% off everything using the code Drinking Bros. That's Drinking Bros, no G, at ghostbed.com forward slash Drinking Bros. Um, the, the bundle package is uh, mattress, adjustable base, and then anything else you add to that. So if you're looking to buy several, <coughs> excuse me, fill several rooms in your house with new beds or whatever, provided you get at least one mattress and one adjustable base, 40% off everything you get. Uh, <clears throat> with the 30% off everything else, it also, uh, you can double down on that. They have a zero down, 0% financing plan for up to 60 months, provided you have decent credit. You can get a fucking nice mattress for like 35, 30, 35 bucks a month. Uh, check it out. They're our buddies. We love these guys. Best pillows in the world. Best. I take the pillows on the road with me. Um, Bob can confirm that now because he's seen it. Uh, go check it out at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. Do you, uh, that's funny. Do you think uh, <clears throat> there's a real chance? I, I don't feel like there's a real chance of that happening. I don't think Roberts will allow that to happen. I mean, he's, 
on, on issues of individual liberty, he's been pretty consistent, and he takes a lot of heat from Republicans now. They they don't like him very much anymore. Well, no, not yeah. Republicans so much, but conservative people who vote Republican, I guess, or whatever. I, I'm not even sure if people who identify as conservative know what the fuck that word means anymore. Uh, I right. know I know that most people who call themselves liberal don't know what that means either, right? No. Or or at least we've redefined all the words. But yeah. so they I don't understand it in a classical sense. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. <clears throat> uh, do you think that this Tea Party that turned into Trump insurgency? Uh, do you think they were angrier at liberal Democrats because of <clears throat> you know? Uh, I'm sure some of it was about Obama. Um, but a lot, a lot of it was just the programming from Newt Gingrich's side of the party for years and Frank Luntz and all those assholes. Um, <clears throat> do you think they were madder at them or madder at what they call rhinos, Republicans in name only, that, you know, like George W. Bush, who started two wars, uh, 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 and, and a, an actual conservative, for those of you who don't know, is pretty anti-interventionist. Like, we don't do that kind of shit uh, uh, and don't really approve of it either, and, and unless it's a, an extreme case. Um, like the Gulf War one, that was a pretty good use of our military power. And it was measured and it had a very specific goal. We met that goal and then we left. Now Bush and took very a lot. broad public support. <clears throat> yes, right. yeah. yeah. An actual coalition, not a coalition of the willing, whatever the fuck that means. But do you think <laughs> do you think I mean so and then Bush also presided, as I said before, over the largest expansion of the federal government history, which is not exactly conservative. So do you think it was right. like just in your right. opinion, you've been covering this shit for a long time. You feel like it was more anger towards liberals or more anger towards my own party fucked me. So fuck these I guys. I think it was I think the reason it was successful is because it was more the latter. It was the anger at the leadership of the party and that's why you get such a potent insurgency mm. as uh, you know as the title of the book says. It's like that those people were angrier at the betrayal that they perceived than they were at the left. Yes, of course they were angry at Bill Clinton and they you know the, Mocked him as a you know as a womanizing hypocrite and a sleaze bag and all that, but the more motivating anger was toward their own party because they felt like these you know they, they cut deals with establishment Republicans like Bush and they never got the respect that they deserve. I I uh, detail in one of my chapters about Trump's kind of strange relationship. Uh, with the religious right, which mm. ended up being more cooperative and collaborative than I think anybody could have imagined. This, yeah. this um, social conservative activist yeah. um, uh, who runs one of the big groups in Washington telling me uh, about his interaction with the, the Bush White, W. Bush White House. And Bush was an evangelical, let's not forget. And this activist said to me, you know, Bush thought he didn't need to deal with us. He didn't need to listen to us because he was one of us and he knew what to do. Um, Trump, uh, the, the, the lesson from uh, uh, of Donald Trump there is that Trump wasn't, of course, an evangelical, didn't, uh, didn't understand that world um, in terms of what they believed. I think he understood them culturally very well, but that the, you know, the, the detailed belief system of an evangelical Christian, he had no clue about. So he deferred to them with a lot of decision making and, and policy, and it ended up being a partnership uh, that was incredibly beneficial and politically uh, politically advantageous for him. Yeah, for sure. Does that um, Bush assuming he would get the evangelical vote because of his you know relationships? Does that sound a little bit like the statement? If you aren't going to vote for me, you ain't black. I mean, that it kind of feels mm -hmm. the same to me. I think that that was a huge mm -hmm. mis that was that's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard uh, a, 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 a politician in a campaign say. But I agree with you a hundred percent about. I've always thought it was more anger at. <clears throat> the Republican establishment. I also think because 
they were angrier at Republicans, the Republican establishment, than they were at liberals, than the actual establishment Republicans, the the elected officials, and the all these nameless, faceless bureaucrats that operate behind the scenes, uh, were terrified of Trump and his little merry band of hyper like hyper focus and hyper energized political activists. Uh, he 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 created what we call in marketing a firebrand, right? Which is to say. Uh, force multipliers all over the place. Um, And you could tell that despite what they may have said behind the scenes or got caught saying here and there, the, all of these people were super afraid of Trump. Like they thought he was going to like, they, they really seemed to, and maybe, maybe this is speculation on my part, but they really seemed like they thought he could end their careers or at least box them out of things. Well, and that's why I think to this day, you still see such, little open dissent mm. uh from i mean yeah you see it from the usual players right like mitt romney um because he doesn't have anything to lose um if, if, if he's in utah he's still incredibly popular um and utah's just you know it's it's an outlier uh but romney's an outlier within the republican party and that you know he's look at look at uh rubio or um look at uh any any other kind of republican like, like cruz right who still has presidential aspirations and they are afraid of Trump. I think the the finer point there is it's not just that they're afraid of Trump, it's that they're afraid of his voters. Because Trump's voters is where their political power comes from as mm. Republicans. In this Republican Party, your ticket to office is through Donald Trump's vote. And until that changes, until the voters decide that they've had enough of him or that he doesn't really uh, do it for them anymore, um, then you're not going to see any any profiles and courage um, from Republicans who are willing to say uh, the election wasn't stolen. Right. Uh, still waiting on evidence for that, by the way. Uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate I, 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 the thing that I say frequently is that you don't really need to hack voting machines if you can hack somebody's brain by tailoring advertising to them and stuff. It's just how political campaigns are run. I think that was really stupid. But um, so you actually, for the book, you interviewed Trump. How did that go? Was that in person or was it, I guess we were in the middle of some shit when you were doing this. So was it on Zoom or what was it? No, it was, uh, it was in person. Um, and I followed up by phone um, to, you know, two very long interviews because for as much as he makes the mainstream media into a punching bag, he's also made himself very available to us. And, mm-hmm. uh, I think a lot of that is his, his subscription to the belief that there's no such thing as bad publicity. Um, he likes to be able to try to steer stories. Um, I found is his perspective to be not very helpful in certain cases, but, um, helpful in others. You know, I, I was very interested to hear, um, to take this back to our, our, the beginning of our conversation, his relationship with Rush Limbaugh and other powerful figures of conservative media. And, you know, as a political novice himself, um, what he what he got from folks like Limbaugh, and he told me this story, is a basis for how he would govern. And that was um, when Limbaugh told him in the winter of 2016, after Trump had been elected, before he'd been sworn in, he gave him a bit of political advice when they were meeting at Mar-a-Lago. And he said, you know, Trump, don't cut deals with Democrats. Don't give in to anything they want you to do. It will never do you any good. The Bushes tried to do that. McCain tried to do it. You know, they will, the Democrats will always hate you. They will never give you any credit for it. And they will always screw you. And if you look at Trump's record, 
that's how he governed. He really was interested from day one in pleasing his people, not everybody, but as as but his instinct for what his people wanted is is was pretty singular. I don't know if if, if it still is as good as it used to be, but back then he knew what his folks wanted and he delivered it to them and he made it his mission because he understood his his, his political future uh, success going forward, ability to get reelected was tied up in giving his people what they wanted and fulfilling the promises that he made to them. Um, and that, you know, it, it was there, I think, in talking to Trump that I realized um, he, Limbaugh and he shared more than I think a lot of people appreciate because they're people pleasers. Trump, above all else, wants to be popular. He wants to be liked because what does that do? It as a hotel developer, it got him the, it, people to stay in his in his resorts and gamble at his you know play at his golf courses. As a, as a political figure, it gets them to vote for him. Limbaugh was also a what I call in the book a popularist, right? Somebody who is is ultimately concerned about their popularity, mm. and that's what that, that 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 phrase actually comes from Trump. It's something that he said when he kind of uh, he, Steve Bannon was was in, was telling Trump about how you know he fit into this tradition of populist American mm. leaders, and Trump says, "Yeah, a popularist. That's what I am." And Bannon says, "No, no, no, populist." And Trump says, "No, no, it's a popularist." And and but Trump was right. He was. Yeah. And, and Limbaugh was too. Limbaugh's goal, it wasn't to advance any sort of political ideology as much as it was to get people to listen to his show, as many people as possible and more than any other show out there. And so they, you know, they kind of share that 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 system of belief. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point. How do you feel about that? The the idea of a popularist uh, insofar, I mean, it you know, you're never going to find an ideological purist because they just won't exist. You can't you you can't make it in politics like that. Um, it just doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Maybe maybe it shouldn't. I don't know. Maybe that's part of the human condition. But <clears throat> how do you feel about that? Because there are certain leaders I think about through history, like Augustus, who uh, all these people have massive egos. Like nobody thinks that they're capable of running the entire world or whatever the fuck unless they have a massive ego. So. <clears throat> Right. What the of all the things you could tie your ego to, being popular is kind of a vain one. But if your popularity is tied to, like uh, uh, Augustus was, hyper focused on not just using the Colosseum to keep people happy, but actually having infrastructure and services and jobs and shit like that. It's why he went to war with Mark Antony because he kept trying to cut off the wheat supply from Egypt. So. Uh, I don't think that being a popularist is intrinsically bad. And I, and I have heard that. And the first time I heard that phrase, it actually, I actually remember that exact conversation being uh, <clears throat> reiterated. And it was, uh, it reminded me, I don't know if you've ever seen trailer park boys, but uh, it's a stupid Canadian TV show. And one of the guys, Ricky just says words that are kind of close, but mean right. something totally different, but it also makes sense all the time. You're like, Oh, that's, fucking weird uh that's kind of where anyways how do you feel about that like you can I, I feel like a popularist with the right people around them can can be a good leader because that's it is important right to be if like right now biden's numbers are in the tank and that's not good for our country for a variety of reasons he can't get anything done there's no confidence in institutions blah 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 but what are your thoughts on that well right i mean biden's an interesting uh person to, to kind of to spool that unspool that idea a little bit because 
when he was elected, he was elected on this 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 promise, this pledge. Um, it was almost like a uh, uh, like an idea, um, more theoretical than anything else. That he was going to restore normalcy to the country. That there was going to be competence in, in the White House again, and not chaos. Uh, Isn't it the same thing that Obama said, though, right? Like after Bush, like we're bringing respect back to the White House or whatever. It's kind of the same thing. Yeah. And, and funny enough, uh, Bush said this, a similar thing. Yeah, about yeah, Bill, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I'm going to yeah. restore honor and integrity to the White House. Right. You know, so a certain <laughs> cleansing, I think, that in people's minds it goes on through. Um, but yes, that was a very populist, uh, a populist message. Like it, it's, it's not particularly ideological. It's I'm going to restore. Uh, I mean, Trump ran on restoring a vision of America that uh, that that I appealed to people for you know a variety of, of reasons. But it was you know ultimately very nostalgic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he said, I'm going to you know, well, that was what make America great again was all about and i think that's that is what it, the problem with populism as i say in the book um you know i quote uh steve bannon talking about trump's first campaign and why it was successful as a populist endeavor and he says you know populism isn't about policy mm. he says our 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 policy was build the wall lock her up and drain the swamp. Right. And after that, we kind of just tried to figure it all out. But you're right, because the problem with a populist is that once you get to power, actually figuring out what to do next, it's, it's like the purpose of the revolution is the revolution. Yeah. Yeah. It's a self-licking ice cream cone. It's like uh, populism has a, it's, it's, it can be a very slippery slope to mob rule, which is never good. Right. I mean, uh, right. Uh, uh, it's it's like uh, Tommy Lee Jones in Men in Black, the first one. He goes, "Yeah, a person is smart, but people are dumb and panicky and afraid. Like people in groups, it's the, you know, it, I I I feel like I agree. It's, and it's always I think that that's always kind of been a um, uh, a fundamental like misreading of of American conservatism. And this is something maybe you and your your listeners will appreciate mm. that famous like William F. Buckley line that I would be ra- I would rather be governed by the first hundred names in the phone book than the faculty at Harvard. Like, I'm pretty sure he didn't actually believe that. No, he definitely <laughs> did not believe that. No. Uh, although I do think um, like I, I was reading this morning and I it always I, I've known this for years, but it always strikes me as so bizarre that uh, 12 of our presidents were related like FDR, uh, FDR and, and uh, Theodore Roosevelt were like fifth cousins, but he's related. Right. Uh, uh, FDR is related to like 12 addition or uh, 10 or 11 additional presidents. Uh, like we, <clears throat> there's this, uh, relatives you mean. Like, yeah, yeah. Distant. I mean, yeah, for sure. But yeah, it's been the same general families like the Roosevelt families and, and, and people like that, that have and Bush family and, and things like that, that have been around, and involved in this stuff for years. Um, and I wonder when, uh, uh, you know, I, I think a better solution might just be to let people that actually understand governance. We, we, I'm not sure that having a popularity contest is necessarily like the idea of populism. I understand because you want the will of the people reflected up for and by the people. That makes sense to me. But what, why, what, why is there the expectation that a popularity contest is going to, select the best conduit for that type of government. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. No, 
And I think, you know, the last time that you saw somebody kind of run, well, I mean, Biden ran on, on being able to govern, you know, leaned on his experience as a vice president in the Senate. And, but look, when, when Hillary Clinton ran in 2016, that was her message, right? Like Obama said, and, and he wasn't wrong about this, that she, you know, she has the most qualified, the most qualifications, you know, the, 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 the longest resume uh, of, of anyone ever to see the, the presidency um, in modern times, or maybe he said ever, but you know, it's, it's that, that was, it was hard to argue with, uh, with her job history, right. And her experience. Um, but people didn't want that, right? right. They wanted the populist. Yeah, for sure. I mean, <clears throat> it is, I suppose th- there's a psychological point there that people need to feel confidence in their leadership. Obviously that's gotta be part of it. Um, so speaking of that, you made the point that Trump didn't, he had, he had a very antagonistic and I see this all the time. And I think it's so funny. Uh, it's one thing I do miss about him. Uh, he had this antagonistic relationship with the press, but he didn't really, he didn't use that like George HW uh, Bush. He, he was in the CIA. He didn't want to talk to the fucking press. Like he was a weird, quiet dude. He didn't really, wasn't very articulate to be honest. Uh, and, and, didn't really care to talk to the press. Trump definitely not like that, and I, <clears throat> I'm sure some of it. Like Clinton in that way. I mean, Clinton. Yeah. Bill Clinton. Uh, you know, I have colleagues um, older than I am because I would have been, you know, in high school mm-hmm. when this was happening. But uh, you know, they they covered his White House, and their phone would ring um, and uh, be the switchboard at the White House saying, "Please hold for the president." So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, yes, this is Trump is not the first one to do this. He's probably the the. The, the one to do it as frequently um, and spend as much time with the press. Um, but he's certainly not alone. Now. I think maybe uh, I, I, this is my, again, speculation, but I think it's like half what you said before that all press is good press from his perspective as a marketing guy. Yeah. And then yeah. part, he just likes to fucking argue. I, I just think he likes, I think he likes the process. I think he likes talking shit and arguing stuff, but I wonder, uh, uh, and it, and it, you know, it was entertaining and, and I guess, I guess, uh, and there were some, I, I do recall some genuine moments, like when he was told on the tarmac that, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died. That was, that might've been the, the first time I saw him have, have a genuine emotion in real time that was, appro- mm. that was like appropriate, you know what I mean? And not, not manufactured, I guess. But, um, <clears throat> I wonder how, what, what are your thoughts on, uh, Trump's handling of the press and what was good or bad about it. And then if you could dovetail that into what Biden's doing now, I know there's a lot of challenges or have been because of uh, uh, COVID and all that bullshit, but it's, to me, it just seems like this weird Kabuki theater where he's built a fake white house set at his house and shit. Like presidents govern from other, uh, other places in the white house all the time. That's nothing new, but I've never seen anybody build a set and sit in front of it like that. That's so bizarre to me. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like a, um, it's like the Disneyland presidency, right? Yeah. Um, it's, but that's, it's a funny way of looking at it because all, he governed or he treated the presidency that that, that way. Like a lot of, of of what was appealing to him about it were, were the ceremonial aspects of the job, not the day to day principles mm. governing of it, right? It was the the planes, the helicopters, uh, the mansions. Um, you know, the he. 
that, that having being able to speak first and you know being the big dog in the room at yeah. all of these global summits um it, the yeah the governing was always a far less interest to the job of being president was always mm. far less of interest um but uh you know the, as far as his relationship to the media goes and what was healthy about it and what wasn't mm. Very unwittingly, he contributed to this golden era of, of journalism where, you know, despite his his calling the New York Times the failing New York Times, um, we're doing incredibly well because people are engaged. Mm. You know, the, 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 the Trump helped people realize, you know, many of whom opposed him, didn't like what he was doing, that they needed to pay more attention. And so they did. So they became more active and engaged consumers with the news. That's a good thing. Mm. I think what's really bad and really pernicious is the way he personally demonized individual reporters uh, and, and us collectively as somehow an enemy of the people, like the enemy, not just of him, but an enemy of the entire country. And that's and, and you've seen this play out in really ugly ways mm. where individual journalists have been targeted, death threats. I mean, it's it, it, it's his rallies, um, you know, people being uh, reporters being roughed up. Um, that's not that's not good. I don't think anybody wants that in their discourse, regardless of who it's happening mm. to. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, he is a little right about some of it, right? I mean, if you're gonna, and I don't know what what how intentional or it was or or whatever, but the the handling of the Steele dossier especially is very problematic for uh, a lot, pretty much every legacy media organization, in my opinion. Uh, there, I don't know what evidence was shown. I what I do know is that the media had been tricked in 2001 right? 2001 and two with <clears throat> Colin Powell sitting at the UN holding this little vial of nothing, like just this amount can do stuff. And, and, you know, I kind of feel bad for the guy, uh, you know, that, that became his legacy, unfortunately, you know, after decades of service to this country and, and shit. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I feel like having been tricked so recently that the media would have been like, eh, maybe this is like this foreign agent and blah, blah, blah. And it didn't take very long to figure out that it wasn't real. Um, and again, I, it's hard to say. It's like a chicken or egg thing. I can't figure out if Trump knew all that stuff. I mean, he knew that he wasn't, that that Trump, that the Steele dossier shit wasn't true because he, he, he's Trump and he fucking didn't do the stuff or, or whatever that was in there. But <clears throat> what do you, right. like, I can't figure out if he was, I can't figure out the timeline. Was he see because he was talking about fake news shit way before that came out. That, he, before. he started that shit in like uh, May or June of 2015, I think. And the Steele dossier didn't come out until what, what was it like September of 2016, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because that would have been um, when he met with Comey. Mm. Uh, at the White House, right before he was actually sworn in as president, right, and Comey warned him that the Russians uh, had something on, or thought, or, or mm -hmm. telling people that they had something on him. It looks like it right? started yeah. in June of of twenty sixteen. That's when the the dossier started to get uh, put together. So either way, like a, almost a full year of him saying because. So I don't know if is like a chicken or egg thing. Did he? see that as a weak point, the media, the legacy media and the distrust for media, academia, whatever else, and just use that as a, as a prop yeah. or did he have, you know, some kind of actual insight into that? It turned out to be true. I don't know. Yeah. To some degree. I, like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what, what he knew or what he didn't know, but I do know that just looking at his history and, and, and I, I explain a lot of this in the book, mm. um, in the chapter where I get into, um, an episode you might remember, um, called, uh, the ground zero mosque. Oh yeah. In the summer 
2010 when um, an Islamic group wanted to build a, a cultural center near Ground Zero, and you know it was it was very unpopular. Uh, the, the you know the appearance of it I think um, struck a, a, a lot of people. Uh, as as unhelpful, I think that you know the reality was like the the intentions of the guy who was developing it, um, who wasn't a radical at all, was mm. was noble if maybe a little naive. Um, but anyway, Trump understood that it wasn't popular. He understood it was an, an elite opinion that this should be built and that most people are not elite and to have obama and mike bloomberg saying that this ought to be built and people who oppose it are, are bigots trump knew that there was a, a way to get in on that debate where his voice on the other side of it could be loud and would be heard and it was his first kind of gone a uh, foray into into gonzo politics mm. there gonzo wedge politics as i quote someone in the book talking about so he's always had this instinct for the, these these wedge issues and uh and and in a way i think that's it you you could see that play out with the media there's a direct line to his you know his his opposition to um the ground zero mosque and his making the you know the people who supported that into a kind of you know and an other, an enemy, and what he does with with his othering of the mainstream media, and you know they're the, they're the bad guys. He's the good guy. It's very it's very simple. It's very it's always been very binary with him. Yeah, it's uh, but that's uh, that that's what works in marketing, right? Uh, I don't know if you've yeah. heard of the phrase uh, paralysis by analysis, but you can't give people too many choices because then right. it's all it's it's a diffused group instead of a, a central group. But yeah, there's that that part to me is really interesting because at no point during Trump's life has he lived the life of a normal human being at no point oh, yeah. like and from from birth until this morning right he's never lived a normal life he's been rich his entire life so i wonder how it is he came maybe it's just doing business deals with with other types of people or some shit but i i really bought, i haven't been able to figure out how he got so good at like that style of manipulation like understanding what motivates people at that level right cuz all of these people, um, there, there are a few outsiders. Like Obama was relatively new on the political uh, uh, landscape, but most of these people that, that get into these positions are patricians by nature, right? Uh, Clinton was a bit of an outsider as well, but go, going back for a very long time, most of these people are blue bloods, and he's a blue blood as well, just not the same type. Like he's, he's more of an economical or an economic blue blood instead of a political mm -hmm. one, but still, he it seemed like... a one of the big digs on liberal Democrats for the last however long is that they don't really resonate with working class folks, especially over the last 20 years or so. It's just stuff has been really oh, offset with them. So right. yeah, like yeah. how, how the hell did this of all the people that could have figured that shit out? How was it this dude with the, the larger than life, the crazy hair, the fucking reality mm -hmm. TV show and the billion dollars. I don't get it. It's something that Roger Stone said to me when I was interviewing him about his early days working with Trump on the casinos mm. and the hotels. And he said that they did market research and found out that uh, the, the people who liked him the best, who wanted to stay in his hotels were more downscale on the economic ladder. A lot of them, as it turns out, were, uh, were black and brown people. Mm. And they saw the way that Trump lived, not as unattainable so much as they did relatable because they wanted to live that way if they had the money that he did you know they saw him you know with the planes 
um, the beautiful wives, uh, it, it, the, the, the putting his name on everything like that was a that's very appealing to a, you know, a big segment of not just working class people, but like, a, you know, a, a lot of Americans. Um, they like the flashiness, mm. you know, you hey, he he even though he's not a self-made man, but sold himself as one. Like, yeah. He made it big. Of course, he should live large like that. And he became the, you know, the working, the, the improbable working man's uh, billionaire figure. And it, that worked really worked for him in politics because, you know, despite all, like you said, never, you know, he, he's never been downtrodden. Um, no. He's lived a life of extreme excess and privilege, but yet he convinces people that he is persecuted and that he shares the same type of struggle to prove himself uh, and to, to to be respected as as a lot of other Americans feel, and it's it's a very that's a very powerful and persuasive emotion. That is really interesting. Well, uh, hopefully we can learn more by reading the book. Uh, again, it is uh, uh, I I've read about two thirds of it so far. A lot of interesting stories. A lot of good, like you, you do a really good job of um, whether or not the reader is going to agree with the conclusion. You do a really good job of taking uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, causes from you know certain periods of time and then linking them up with you know responses in other periods of time. I really enjoyed the way this book was written. Um, Thank you. Uh, yeah, tell everybody where before we get out of here. Tell everybody where they can find you, where they can find the book. Oh, uh, your your bookseller of choice, um, whether that's uh, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, or your favorite independent uh, local bookstore, um, it's called Insurgency: How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Ever Wanted. Um, and I'm uh, Jeremy Peters of the New York Times, and you can find me uh, on Twitter at jwpetersnyt. Great. Well, thanks for coming today. We really appreciate the conversation. Enjoy the rest of your day in New York. Uh, uh, hopefully it goes well. Hopefully the weather's nice there. It's starting to warm too up. Cold. Yeah. Too cold. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming out today. We appreciate it. We'll see you uh, guys next time. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.